What's up, Bike Rumor fans? This is your host, Anna Schwinn, taking over the Bike Rumor podcast from Tyler Benedict once again. We are continuing our pre-show series on the builders coming to the Philadelphia Bike Expo coming up in just a few days on November 2nd and 3rd at the Pennsylvania Expo Center in the city of sisterly affection, Philadelphia, PA. Last episode, we spoke with frame builder Jackie Mautner about her brand Untitled Cycles, as well as her days working at Breadwinner. This week, I'm excited to introduce a builder with some of the best technical chops I know, Danielle Schoen of Studio Schoen. Like her peer, Julianne Petalino, Danielle is a skill hoarder. She's constantly growing her toolkit, giving her greater capability as her work evolves. But where Julianne Petalino has spun into computer-aided design and CNC machining, Danielle skews more visceral. For more on that, I'm here with the fabulous Danielle Schoen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here and talk to you and uh, talk about all things bikes and frame building and shows and all that good stuff. Everybody in this series comes at cycling in a little bit of a different way. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into cycling? I did a lot of cycling in college just as a means to get around, you know, like broke kid living downtown, living off one cheese pizza for an entire week. So it's just a product of necessity. Bike culture in Toronto, where I'm from, is pretty huge. And then getting into like racing alley cats with my friends. An alley cat comes from like the messenger scene and it's just this. It simulates being a bike messenger. Yeah. And and you're just kind of released into the wild. They're all different and it depends on like who's running it and what the event is and whatever. But that was actually mm-hmm. kind of my first foray into racing, if you want to call it that. Kind of backwards got into real racing from there. I went to track first because I kind of entered through the mess life. Uh, So, you know, riding a track bike around the city. And then like we actually, Toronto got this amazing world-class track built in Milton a few, maybe four years ago, five years ago. So we would all go out there and practice. Before you were a frame builder, you were a fabricator. So can you talk about those chops and what led you into that and then how that sort of with cycling segued into frame building? I actually come from a fine art background originally. I went to the Ontario College of Art and Design, which is the oldest fine art university in the country, and they will not let you forget it. Um, But I went there for (laughs) photography. So I have a BFA in photography and printmaking, actually. So like super fine art background. Worked briefly as a photographer kind of in the editorial commercial world. Ended up in a super unrelated corporate job after college. Just one of those like, and ended up working in doing IT strategy. And at the time it was like just a job, good money, like Bay Street, which is like a big deal in Toronto. That was fine for a while, but a sharp turn from creative fine art, always making hands-on background. So after a couple years, I found it to be very draining and I didn't feel good. And it, I was doing a lot of commercial shoots for friends on the side. Like I would take my vacation time from that job to go and like help shoot a catalog or like just out of necessity of doing something creative. And it got to the point where it was like, you know, I have this great job and, you know, the company is, is reasonably okay. And the, I like the people I work with. It's basically like the ideal corporate situation, let's say, and I'm miserable. Mm-hmm. I hate it. Like, this is not for me. I absolutely cannot sit in a cubicle nine to five at Bay in Adelaide 
for the rest of my life. So I went back to school. That was kind of the turning point for me. And I just needed something to get my hands dirty, so to speak. Like I just wanted to learn something, do a new skill, try something just out of need to be creative. Um, and I found that there is uh, George Brown College in Toronto does a lot of continuing education programs. And they had the, they had this entire welding program that you can basically start part time. So I did that. Uh, and I was kind of like, I will, I'll take one class. If I hate it, I never have to do it again. If I like it, then I can, I can keep doing it. So I did one class, and I really liked it. And I picked it up fairly quickly and I got really good feedback from my instructor. So I took the next class, then I took the next class. And then over the course (laughs) of about two years, I just accidentally worked my way through an entire welding diploma at George Brown. It's difficult because you're basically working, you know, six days a week type thing. So you're, you're going doing your, your corporate nine to five. And then all day Saturday, you're in an, basically an industrial shop just running plates all day. So I did that for about two years. You hadn't been like looking at a career in that direction. You'd just been taking classes. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't really know how to approach it. If you come from a, a completely different world, the instructors were actually super helpful, very encouraging. And one of them was like, you know, I, I see what you're doing and you seem really interested in, in this and you pick it up really well. Um, you know, from what you've told me from your background, you're creative, you want to do this stuff, you don't just want to go straight into, you know, pipe welding or um, working in like the hard industrial stuff, like you want to go do more creative type work. So you should look into uh, the inspector type stuff. Because that's something again, you can do at a higher level, and then have the fabrication skills to go back and do your own like creative work. It's basically, it's QC, right? So it's all nationally certified safety, Board of Canada, like very high level that you can't take evenings and weekends. Like that's when it gets kind of more serious game time decision. That was around the time that I had done all this welding and I knew that, you know, my job was just a job and I didn't really care about it. And I was like, okay, I might have enough here now in this new field that I can kind of, I can make the call. I can make the jump. There are only three places in Canada and they're kind of on a rolling basis. So they're only offered a few weeks out of the year. It's intensive coursework. Um, I realized that I could, if I quit my job and just dove into it, I could take like the next six to eight months off, be okay and just you know, really commit and go through all of this coursework and do these certifications. And I signed up for the courses, I quit my job. And then I just went into doing all of those certifications as well. So that's kind of how it all started. And I was like, at the time, I think I was, I guess I was like 23, maybe 22, 23. So I was like, I'm, I'm young enough that if this sucks, and I made a terrible decision, and I'm broke and whatever, I, you know, I can get a shitty job and start again. It's not the end of the world. But it's that's the type of thing that I would rather do now, take the risk. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And, you know, not have that regret, regret in 20 years that I was like, oh, you know, I, I could be broke for a year and a half while I try to make this change. Just, uh, I'm not going to do it. Then, you know, I'd rather just see if it's going to work or not. 
that's a lot of drive. You're talking about programming and uh, like a technical expertise that's extremely specific. It's really hard. It's not like you taught yourself how to weld. No, I had to relearn a significant amount of calculus to actually even get into the inspector school. It's very like calculus heavy, trig heavy. It's it's just like you're just doing calculations all day, every day. So you get this amazing education and then you start building bikes. What? It happened very organically, which I think kind of everything I just spoke about at the time was very organic. I'm stagnant at this point and I need to do a growth. How do I make that happen? And then you just kind of, you know, you look around at who you are and what you're doing and what you want to accomplish. And then you figure out what the thing you need next to grow in the direction that you want is. And then you go and do the thing. Fast forward like maybe six or eight months around that amount of time, I had done all of these inspector courses and I'm armed with all of this new knowledge ready to go. And um, I got back home because I was living in another city at the time to go and do the school. I had leased out, like I had subletted my apartment. I didn't have a job and I was like sleeping in my mom's den. And I was like, okay, what do I do next? Around that time, I was had also gotten into road racing. I had done some alley cats and track racing and whatever and I'm like oh this is a thing I will try and I had really only ever ridden shitty secondhand bike and I was like I know how to weld I have this fabrication experience I'm reasonably handy I know that frame building is a thing um obviously world renowned old Italian names and and everything in the American names and it was also kind of around the time that frame building was just starting to have this little moment on Instagram, very early Instagram, where there were a few builders that were posting all of this stuff. And I was like, okay, I know this is a skill that I can learn somehow. And I did a little bit of research and found out that Paul Brody was teaching in BC in Abbotsford. And I was like, okay, you know, there's tons and tons of courses in the States with so many incredible builders. But at the time, that was a little bit inaccessible for me. Um, So to find out that there was someone in the country that I could go and learn from was really amazing. So I signed up for that course. It wasn't, yeah, I'm gonna go be a frame builder. It was like, I want a nice new road bike and it'd be cool if I could make it myself. And I know that this is a skill I can probably acquire. That's so cool. That's so cool. I love that. So I I went and signed up for the course and flew out to BC. I had lived in BC for a short amount of time prior to that, a few years. So I knew like I love British Columbia. I actually just recently moved back to British Columbia. I knew that if anything, I would just have a nice time because it's a place that I enjoy. And I ended up having a fantastic time because I got to go through this experience with this, you know, master craftsperson and absorb all of this incredible knowledge and produce this tool that I can now use to go on adventures. I never really looked at it from a capacity where it's like, I'm going here to like learn skill to use in a business. It was this standalone experience that I enjoyed so much. I knew it was something that I wanted to continuously do after the work. Can you give some background on Paul Brody? Brody is, he was one of the original builders for Rocky Mountain. Um, I believe it was him, Krista Kerf, and Harold, who is now Toxic Harold painting whose last name I cannot remember off the top of my head my apologies but they all kind of were working in this capacity together in from what I hear this like old rickety shop and you know 
as it sometimes is a bunch of kids running around in a warehouse. Um, but they were they were doing Rocky Mountain. Uh, from what Paul has told me, you know, he was doing his own designs on the side and wanted to do this more creative stuff. And, you know, everybody, uh, you know, living in North Shore of Vancouver is a huge mountain bike scene. So they were starting to build all of these bikes for this specific North Shore riding style. Um, and he, he eventually broke off and started Brody Frames. And since then, the company has gone through, he's, he's no longer part of the Brody name, but he was the one who started it and built it up and went, took it through all of its iterations. And now he just works on the side. He's heavy into motorcycle fabrication now. He's been doing the frame building course out of the University of Fraser Valley for quite a few years. And it's just really a, a fantastic tradesperson and I think a very critical part of the Canadian scene. So it was really cool to um, have that experience with him and be able to just talk to him about kind of where it's all come from and, and where it is now. Can you describe what that class was like? It's based out of the University of Fraser Valley Aerospace Engineering Center, which is an airplane hangar. It straight off the bat is super cool because you go onto an airfield and you go into an airplane hangar to like go to class. And they've just kind of co-opted this small corner of the space and Brody has turned it into his own little section. But you walk in and there's like taken apart helicopters. The guys are doing their like riveting class over there. So it's just like air tools all over the place. So it's a really just incredible environment if you have that technical background. And you sounds really exhilarating. It's, it's incredible. It's just so cool. Um, there, I just want to touch everything. There are actually signs on everything that says do not touch because they know the type of person that is <laughs> walking through that space <laughs> like please don't touch this taken apart helicopter that's on rollers so anyway uh it's a very efficient space there's not like a significant amount of machinery but you do most of your operations on the mill and the lathe he's got just this entire historical cabinet of his own developed um, like alignment tools and jigs and fixtures and nothing is labeled so you pick up a thing and you're like what is this and then he'll just show you how brilliant it is when I was there there are two other guys there like it's a pretty intimate like space you know three to one which is I think very critical if you're trying to learn something highly technical in a short amount of time it's not necessary that you go in with technical background I mean it definitely makes it a lot easier but there are absolutely people who walk in off the street with can't hold a hammer type and walk out with a bike at the end of the, the course which is you know a little bit of a more difficult process than some, but you know you can do it because uh, it's it's really there to guide you through the, the process, the basics, some geometry, and get you familiar and comfortable with using a mill, using a lathe, and kind of running through that entire process from start to finish. What process did you learn by? You can do Tigger Philip raising, and having just completed a significant amount of TIG school, so to speak, I was like, nah, I know how to do that. Like, I don't want to learn that. I want to learn brazing because that's actually not something 
unless you're doing like pipe fitting or something specifically a lot of like plumbing maybe some electrical trades type work brazing is not really a thing that's taught anymore you might get some like oxy fuel cutting torch time depending on where you go to school but welding school is really like stick maybe tig mig because they want you they're trying to throw you in an, into an industry where you can like bang out piecework all day. So I was vaguely familiar with brazing, understood the concept, but had never actually really done any of it in practice. So I was like, no, I want to learn this. This is a, a specific skill that I'm actually very interested in. And who better to learn it from than, you know, someone who's been doing it specifically in this application for, I don't know, 30 plus years. So. The thing is, is that I know that your education doesn't stop with Paul Brody. Mm -hmm. It goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. From Paul Brody, Brody, you then go to frame building school with Yamaguchi. Mm -hmm. That was a couple years later, but yeah. Why did you decide to come back? And how did you approach it differently this time? I do this thing where I just keep going back to school all the time. I don't know why. And I've done it like four or five times now for different things. I'm getting to the point now again where I want to do it again for something else. And I'm like trying to make myself not do it. After I had done Brody's course and I was in Vancouver for a while, I ended up coming back to Toronto again. And I was just working as a mechanic in a tiny shop for a frame builder, but he doesn't produce like a lot of work. He does mostly like repair type stuff. So I was kind of, you know, doing half mechanic stuff, doing frame repair, kind of a little bit all over the place. But you know, you're in a you're in a little bike shop environment. So it's like high stress, everything's a rush all the time. You're making 15 bucks an hour. You didn't really have much creative control, I guess. It was really interesting in the sense that I got to get into frame repair in that way. And I actually learned a lot from him in that regard. I had come, just gone through this whole process of building something up from start to finish and completely controlling the process. And then now I was looking at it from a different angle where it's like, okay, this thing is built. It's broken. What do you do? You can actually just cut part of it out and replace it. Oh, sick. I had no idea. And kind of going like that's an entire other world to get into and like can of worms if you're putting heat into a vintage frame to try to salvage something like let let me tell you <laughs> so split with some oh, seams God. You know, <laughs> run into some pin oh, joints boy there's the things that you the things that you will learn and see it's really tell us tell us one of those lessons oh boy <laughs> it's fine it's fun <laughs> It's super fun. You should totally try it one day. It's gratifying. It's gratifying. It's gratifying. It is though. You know, you I, I, I really actually love doing frame repair and stuff like that. Um, you know, in one aspect from a, a sustainability um, idea, because it's just going to go in the garbage if you can't save it. And that kind of sucks because it still has a lot of life left in it. And from another, the people who are willing to pay to have you repair a frame it has some sort of sentimental value or attachment or, or, you know, specific meaning to them that they want to salvage this thing. To see the reactions of people come in and they're like, oh my God, you saved this. This is incredible. I'm so happy. I can ride it again. I thought I was going to have to throw it in the garbage. It's really, that part is actually like super satisfying. You're doing frame repair and learning a ton about, I would assume, how bikes go together yes. uh, for better or for worse. Yes. Serving customers who are coming in with bikes that they must be attached to, which, which sounds really gratifying and lovely. Mm -hmm. What's the point where you're like, I need to go back to school and I need to do this for real. I was in a similar feeling of like how when I was in that corporate job and, you know, okay, so I'm at least I'm back in a, I'm in a shop. 
I'm working with my hands. I'm doing something vaguely creative. I'm at least doing something. But, you know, I'm making, being paid as a mechanic. I have no creative control. Not really accomplishing anything, I guess. I had always had this idea and desire that at some point I was going to have my own shop of some sort. It has gone through a couple of iterations since, you know, I was in school. I, for a long time, wanted to have my own gallery space where I would showcase you know other people's work and then do my own you know have my own photo studio in the back or whatever and then it kind of evolved into this more creative maker space I was at a point again where I just felt a little bit stagnant and I was like I've gone through all this effort to acquire all of these new skills so and I'm not making that much money but I might as well just take the leap and try to do my own thing I need that creative control to make it really worthwhile for me it had been probably two years since I had taken in Brody's course. I was using a torch but hadn't done any like real frame building per se. I knew that um, Yamaguchi was in Colorado and made the decision that I was going to go take that course because I knew also that he had a very different approach. Koichi is very traditional and it's all hand tools. He's got a mill. I can't remember if he has a lathe in his shop but he has tools but you learn with files like hacksaw files. I think if you're at crunch time near the end he like might let you use a Dremel to work on your fillets. And that was attractive to me in this kind of purist creator sense, but also a very, but also this very functional sense of like, if I set up a shop, it's going to be like me renting a space and having some benches, not me rolling up and buying $20,000 worth of machine tools. So I was trying to be like realistic in a sense. And the process thus far that I had learned was through Brody, which is very, he's all about like, you know, you're using a mill, you're using a lathe, you are doing some finishing work with files and stuff and, and finessing. However, like that's, their processes are very, very different. So I was really interested in, in it from that perspective to go and learn from a completely different point of view. That was my idea to myself was that I'm, I'm going to go do this. And if it reaffirms that this is a thing that I would like to continue on with, then I'll come back and I'll find a space and I'm just going to like throw myself to the wolves and go for it. What's the time frame here? You said that you took Yamaguchi's class two years after Brody's class mm -hmm. and you were building and doing repairs in between. Mm -hmm. When are these points in time? Well, I started my shop at the end of 2014. Like I was pulling the pieces together end of 2014 because I think it was in the spring of 2015 when I was actually like physically in my space, like doors open, tools in the shop, working at a bench. Was it initially a, a frame building shop or was it a general fabrication? I never intended to kind of pigeonhole myself into a frame building niche. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in all types of fabrication. Realistically, I just want to make stuff. I love bikes. I love making bikes. Cycling is such an ingrained part of my life and my community. But I really am just happy to help anybody create anything because that is the most satisfying part for me. I've done furniture. I've done commercial fixtures. I've done signage for shops. I've helped other artists with fabrication points in their own work that they can't obtain you know like someone has come in and they're like I have this sculpture I need to do this thing like this is what I want to create but I you know I'm, I'm lacking that technical knowledge so I end up I fabricate their thing for them which I actually really love doing so yeah it's just kind of been everything but building custom frames has been this incredible kind of segue from it and I think it's also a product of just kind of the the community that I came from is cycling in Toronto and 
you know, those are the people that I know and kind of grew up around. And my first shop was, I was renting space in the back of a bike shop, like a, an addition on the back of the building. Shout out Mojo Cycles, what up? So it kind of, it was a product of, you know, who I was and where I, where I was at the time that I was kind of starting this business. I had built a couple frames and I had gone to the Toronto Bike Show, which is like, nowhere near a Philly or a NABS. It kind of has this actually dirty reputation of just all of the shops show up and like sell off their last year stuff for like dirt cheap so they can clear it out before like their booking order comes in. It's like, it's really like, so the first year I went, I brought a couple frames and I was like really excited. And for me, it was like the, like the premiere of my brand. And I was like 90% of the people that talked to me at the show were like, so you paint bikes? Like, what are you, what are you doing? Like nobody understood there were you know there's a handful of people who know like custom bikes and you know my friends but like 90% of the conversations I was having was like explaining what I would was doing what <laughs> why this bicycle is several thousand dollars I could ride the bike that I was showing to the show and like between me and two other people like strap all my shit into just like our bags and our racks and like roll up and like build a trade show booth which is very appealing you knowing how it is to like get set up for a trade show. I went for a couple years and then I and I stopped going because it's it was nice in the sense that it gets all of kind of the Toronto community together in one space. I can go around and talk to all of my shop friends all at once in like one room, but realistically from a from a perspective of like a frame builder trying to like showcase their custom wares, it is not your audience at all. It's a spot meet audience. Yeah basically. You have swap meets in Canada. Yeah. There's a language gap. There is. I'm like, do I have to explain swap meets? I mean, we're both basically Midwestern-ish. So I think we share a lot of similar weird language and mannerisms, like how we out polite each other when we were trying to link up for a phone call. Yeah. (laughs) sorry oh i'm not home yet sorry like oh take your time no it's fine take your time okay sorry (laughs) it's just who it's who we are as a people okay it's deeply ingrained my accent is definitely coming out in this interview because i keep forgetting to suppress it anyway so you go to the toronto bike show you don't get the acclaim that you so deeply deserve i mean it was it was okay um i think i got a couple orders from that first show which was like super cool for me because i never even considered that i would produce a thing that people would proactively want to buy that's so maybe like yeah i was really excited so that kind of got the ball rolling for me in terms of like bike stuff and i was doing other stuff you know other fabrication things which are arguably pay slightly better uh than what (laughs) the return is on a custom frame that's another conversation but it it was a really good setup for me because I could do you know I would do I did a couple like boardroom tables and just like tables for someone's house and like fixtures and whatever and it's like quick work that you can charge a reasonable you can charge like a an actual shop rate for which is a weird disconnect that I've never really understood in the frame building world is like shop rate in fabrication is 70 to maybe like 120 dollars an hour which is I mean, to some people, maybe that sounds exorbitant. But to me, I'm like, yeah, that's not bad. Like my shop rate is 70 bucks an hour, one hour minimum, because I know your job is only going to take five minutes. But trust me, it's not going to take five minutes. When you turn around and try to apply that to frame building, if you actually like charged 
an hourly shop rate for the amount of hours that go into frame building, like it would be completely unattainable. And I, I came from like this fine arts background of doing like freelance photography. Photography is maybe, maybe it's because it's it's not like a, a physical, tangible thing. It's just like, oh, it's photography. Like everybody has a camera. Everyone can do it. So the freelance rates for t- photography are abysmal. And the number mm-hmm. of people that are like, you can do it for exposure. I will give you one free event ticket if you come and shoot my giant event for me for maybe this is like the naivete of being like green in a new industry but I was like yeah it's so awesome I'm gonna be in trades I'm gonna get away from that people are gonna like see the shop rates and just you know be ready for it and that is not the case let me tell you no so I don't know what it is despite everything (laughs) so here we are so here we are The first time I ran into you mm-hmm. was at Sacramento in 2016. Correct. That was a really fun show. Mm-hmm, it was. But I was totally like given junior beat. They're like, your job is to cover the new builders. I'm like, okay. But you you did it with such enthusiasm. Yeah, of course. Yeah. How fun was it? It was. It was very fun. Yeah. I'm such a dork for this stuff. This is what I love to talk about, yeah. you know. That was my first foray into like the North American handmade bicycle scene. I I was like, same thing how it had all happened before was I knew it was a thing. Let's just roll up and see what happens. So I was like very overwhelmed and excited and terrified to be there. Well, so talk about that. What was it like? Because NABS is the biggest show that we've got worldwide for independent frame builders. Mm -hmm. It's like the big leagues. And especially when it's in Sacramento, when the crowds are huge. Mm -hmm. Coming from the Toronto Bike Show to NABS, where suddenly you're surrounded by other frame builders Mm -hmm. at just the biggest scale you could possibly be. Mm -hmm. It was very overwhelming. It was a really incredible kind of peek into all of the things that were going on that I had no idea of. It was really refreshing to have a lot of the conversations that I wanted to have at the Toronto Bike Show. I would say 80% of the people were coming up to me and being like, this is this thing. And we would just like have this super nerdy, specific machining conversation for like 40 minutes about like one thing. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like these are the people that know this thing and love this thing and like want to talk about it and celebrate it. And for a minute, we should talk about the bike that you brought because it was one of the coolest bikes I saw that year. Everything about it was just really fun Mm -hmm. and really technical. Can you describe that bike so that was stainless steel track frame that I built that was my first foray into lug carving and so it was like a full lug set it was like donut inspired are those lugs lugs or is that bilaminate they're lugs yeah they were I I built them separately even that cluster yeah it's I built it separately in its own entity and then backwards fit it into a frame my my process my process has refined since then. Let's say I learned a lot of things with that bike. That's such a pain in the oh, ass. Oh boy, it sure was. Looks nice though. <laughs> um, it looks great. So the lugs, the lug. So it's the the jelly roll bike. Yeah, it's and, like jelly. It's like donut vibes. Yeah, and you've got like frosting, kind of like oozing at all of the frame joints. You've got this cool little like stick of dynamite exploding on the head tube. Mm-hmm. You've got such a cool fork. Mm-hmm. Talk more about it. Yeah, the fork, I wanted to do like a big, like chunky tapered head tube. And the fork 
crown that I wanted didn't exist. So I took one of the Paragon tapered steer tubes and I cut up like just some generic cast or crown that I had in a drawer and I just braised them together to like get the angle that I wanted and get like the look that I wanted and that was really like a click moment for me where I was like you know anything is possible it's like you have an idea and it's like you can just cut stuff up and make it and that's that's really what I love about this whole thing is you just have some passing thought of like maybe some ridiculous thing and you're like, yeah, let's make that. Let me take this ridiculous doodle and like just backwards engineer it the best I can into like a real thing. And I think that's just whimsical and fun. Um, Like I just have (laughs) such a good time with it. You're stuck within some critical elements of physics and engineering and math and whatnot. But a lot of it is just, you know, the sky's the limit. That's just, I think that's the best part of it for me in and in of itself is just like the endless creative possibilities. Well, the thing, the thing I really appreciated about the bike is that there were a couple of details and I did not know that those were lugs. Mm-hmm. That is so impressive to me. The thing I like about it is that there's evidence of you being a fabricator first before being a bike builder. Mm-hmm. People who are bike builders first tend to play more by bike rules. This is how this type of joint is made. Mm -hmm. This is how this type of effect is created. Here are the types of parts that make this system work. Mm -hmm. There are catalogs for those things. There's like well-established practices. There's this traditional aspect of it, the historical perspective of how to build things. Mm -hmm. And you're coming at it with these massive fabrication chops and all of this like frame repair under your belt. The rules literally just don't apply to Mm -hmm. you. That's really cool. (laughs) I would say that also a product of like coming from I guess outside of the industry and like not just knowing all of those rules like I'm by no means like a lifetime mechanic or anything or like you know I haven't been cycling since I was like a child type thing so I mean like not knowing all of those rules has maybe been like a blessing and a curse but it's been really interesting to like just kind of you know, pick your way through it. And I've always just started with an idea. And then that's it's kind of like, if you look back on kind of how I got here, is it was always just an idea. And then I figure out what skills or things or tools or process or whatever I need to acquire to do that thing. I think that's just kind of like the magic of it is you can just pluck an idea out of the sky and make it into a real thing. I love this because in this respect, you and Julianne have like so much in common. Yes. Like you're both like skill hoarders. Julie Julie is who I want to be when I grow up. Just watching all of the things that she does is incredible. And like we have a little bit of a different aesthetic. Like she goes hard on the embellishments and the details and everything. Everything, and I think it's incredible and it's beautiful. You dabble. I dabble. You dabble. I, dabble. I, I mean, I dabble from a sense <laughs> like I don't have a very like clearly defined like aesthetic or brand thing. That's something that I've always like struggled with personally as an artist because I'm more interested in the exploratory process of just like the whole thing that I have never really like re- refined into a specific. Like you look at some builders and like. You can see it across the room and you know exactly what it is. So I'm still like kind of, I'm, I have a bit of an idea of what I 
want to focus on, but I'm circling and I've always been kind of playing around with that thing. Mm -hmm. Going back to the donut bike for a minute, the dropouts that I did on that was actually something that I really enjoyed. I've only done them on that bike, but I think I'm going to bring them back for not the not the Philly bike, unfortunately, but I think the next bike that I'm finishing up is like a plug. And I machined out these tapered inserts for to match the, like the inner profile of the tube oh like bottomize you did bottomize I don't know what that is but sure well you know you know you know top eyes there yeah. that's the top of the seat stay bottomize are on the bottom oh yeah Tom Warmerdam taught me that oh. at Sacramento now oh really Oh, yes. I was like, what What the fuck are you talking about? And he's like, no, bottom eyes. I'm like, who does that? Yeah. He's like, I do that. And I'm like, well. I love Tom. I think you were doing like, it too. If you want to talk about people <laughs> to look up to in the industry, I think Tom is incredible. And his work is just like phenomenal. And it is like something to yes. aspire to. I look at the things that he does and I don't understand. That is what I aspire to be. I'm like years and years and years and years away from that obviously but some of the work that you can see and and look up to is just so incredible what don't you understand about tom's stuff i I don't know i just i think it's just so clean and packaged very well like it's it's from start to finish it's very cohesive and like it's very identifiable like you you know a demon from across the room like i said you know i really love that and i think that amount of refinement takes a long time to get to slash do well i don't know that's something that i i really appreciate and love to look at and i guess especially to at some point after Sacramento you take a year off the next time I see you is at is at Philly Bike Expo what 2017 I think yeah and it was an especially cool year because it was you and it was Julianne Petalino both uh representing with yes. bikes and uh beth was mm-hmm. there beth, frontier bikes beth from frontier bikes was there i was wearing my frontier bikes shirt out. this morning it's cool everyone should go get one <laughs> it's such a good vibe from that shop and she's been she's been tooling up I lately know. so i can't I'm wait very to see excited. Get started. yeah when people tool up they're gearing up for they're, something they're big ready. and cool and new yeah and, uh, it's been coming for a minute mm-hmm. from beth so we're all excited talk about what philly bike expo is as a um, show i mean like when we were Going back to NABS um, in Sacramento, I was, you know, standing basically alone on New Builder Isle, feeling very, like, overwhelmed and wondering if this is a place that I should be. Stephen Belenke actually, like, walked right up to me and said hi and looked at my work and said, I love what you're doing, handed me a flyer and said, we would love to have you come to Philly. I was like, oh, okay, thanks. I was, you know, so pleased that, you know, someone would come in, like, invite me to their show. And so I looked into Philly and what it was all about and kind of the vibe that it was. And myself and Shondell from RYB made plans to go down together the next, next, next year. Because another, like, a, a big benefit of Philly is they allow booth splitting, which from a small frame builder slash business perspective is very appealing because trade show booths are, you know, in the thousands. And then you have like booth plus insurance plus travel plus stickers aren't free. All that kind of stuff adds up. And then especially as a Canadian traveling to and in and around the States is incredibly expensive. It's basically at this day and time, 40% more on the dollar. So whatever the cost is, add 40%. And that's what it costs. 
for us to to roll up to your beautiful country. So from a business perspective, it's like what is realistically the return if you're trying to think of it in that sense of going to these types of shows. So Philly was very appealing because it's it's like a nine hour drive from Toronto. Shandell and I kind of loaded up a car and I like just, you know, threw a frame in in the back type thing and put it on the table. The frame you had on the table, the frame, it was a frame set, right? Yes, correct. At least bits bits of it were polished stainless. You had these custom cut wings on the mm-hmm. back of the seat cluster. Yeah. And your cable routing was like, I can still see parts of it because it was like really beautiful and like organic and you had these just perfect little fillets mm-hmm. the way they sort of like poked through the tubes it was Thank a lovely you. yeah with that one I was you know I had done the donut bike which was kind of like all out like full lug set like in your face and I was trying to you know explore a similar sensibility but maybe dial it back a bit make it a little bit more refined and see like what that would look like for me. So I was playing around. I did like the wing kind of seat tube wrap by laminate, which I carved, just kind of let that dictate how the rest of the bike would flow. Oh, you um, carved carved that yourself? I hand carve everything. What? I am I am a hands-on. I, I don't have the tooling to do the type of work that Julie is doing, which I love and like I aspire to. And I love that she has like robots doing her art bidding. It's the best. Um, but and and I love it and you know I would I would absolutely love to get that kind of tooling set up in in the future but I think there's also something to be said for just like laying it out with some sharpie and a jeweler saw and going for it. it again it kind of rolls back into my whole personal artistic and creative desires is I just want to lay it out there and kind of create it and just feel it out that's how that started you know I had my geometry set out and had my tubing set out and I sleeved a tube to fit onto the seat tube and sketched it up in sharpie and went from there and I think there's always been a little bit of a disconnect for me in computer-aided design I have a little bit of CAD knowledge um, not like significant so for me to communicate to a software what I want to make is more difficult than me just drawing it and doing it. It's tricky in a sense that you don't have that like specific plan laid out in front of you. So it has to be a little bit more organic. And if you're not careful, it can go south very quickly because you don't have hard specs that you're working by. Mm or like tool paths or, or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, but that comes from so much practice. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of the the bike that I'm bringing to Philly is the same vein is I, I had an idea which people are, are either going to love and find hilarious or they're going to hate it. I just bored out a tube to fit over the seat tube and I drew it on with Sharpie and away we go. I have my my preferred arsenal of tooling and, you know, it's not perfect. And there are some situations where I remember like listening to Julie's interview, it's like you can't get a jeweler saw in there or it doesn't work or, you know, you kind of have to finagle the way that you're going to get in there in ways that a fourth access machine would not have issues. But I mean, it's part of the process. It's kind of part of the fun. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe sometimes it's type two fun, but it is what it is. And I think you got to appreciate the whole process from start to finish so it's just me and a sharpie 
do you want to talk about the bike you're bringing to Philly this year? Or do you want to like leave it um, to be like a surprise? Uh, I'm super excited about it. I mean, I've been kind of in a weird place the past like year and a half. I went back to working full time as a messenger just because I was feeling like super overwhelmed not focusing on the type of work that I wanted to do in my shop, because it's kind of that reality of business where, you know, you got to pay the bills doing only specifically the type of creative projects that you want to do isn't always feasible. I had an opportunity to go and work full time as a, as a courier as a, like a legal messenger, which is like pretty chill, but it's like nine to five. So you're on the road from eight till five. And then I would ride across town to my shop and then work from like six to 10 or 11. It affords you the, the ability to be more selective with the work that you take on. But then in the small amount of time that you have remaining, to produce that work you know you're you're exhausted or like you can't get into kind of that creative mental state that you need or want to be in or it just kind of all becomes too much in the other direction but it's this balance of like art as a business is a question as old as time I guess it's like what's that balance of creative liberty but also financial stability so I was trying to figure that out a lot and then found out that I was going to be moving across the country my partner had a job opportunity that he decided to take and we decided collectively that we were going to make the the haul to move back across the country to British Columbia so I've kind of been going through the motions of moving an entire shop across the country and figuring that out and also, you know, kind of uprooting myself from this community that I've been really intertwined with for, you know, 10 plus years now and having this great network of shops that I know will refer work to me and kind of being ingrained in a community to being dropped into a place where it's like I know like three people here so not only the like the actual physical moving of a shop and all of your shit that you realize Mm -hmm. that you own when you have to put it all in boxes across the country and then finding somewhere to put it and then you know rebuilding kind of in that physical sense but um also that like network and community and i need a new powder coater i need a new i have a small who's yeah, your like, tooling guy like who's yeah the bike i, I don't working have with have any of that here um you know i have a little paul brody is actually he's been super helpful and actually i was working for him kind of shortly after i got here he actually was in a pretty serious motorcycle crash uh and oh no he's 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 okay but he was in a wheelchair for a few months he broke his leg and his wrist and i think was a little bit uh further banged up but he needed a sh- he needed a shop as- assistant because the show must go on type thing so he was okay but you know couldn't be on his feet alone in a shop all day rearing four students uh around massive tools so he asked me to come come and kind of be his shop hand for a while until he got better, which was actually a super cool experience of going back to kind of where it all started and seeing it from the other side. And you were doing some of the instructing then. Yeah, too. I was doing a lot of kind of the base level, like I did a lot of like brazing demos and, you know, kind of watching everyone on the mill and the lathe and kind of introducing them to those functionalities in like a, a safe and digestible manner so it's like Paul could be you know over on the other side of the shop working with someone on a geometry or you know setting up picking their tubes and kind of setting up all that type of stuff and I'm over here on the other side with someone who's you know prepping to make their first cuts facing their their tubes or 
you know, I did a couple of little TIG lessons. That was actually a really fun experience um, for me, which I hope I can continue if if he continues to need a shop hand. But so I, I was doing that. And that was like, right after I moved here, and then getting my shop all set up, basically, it is it takes time, right? Because, you know, all your stuff is in boxes and you got to, you're in a new space and you got to set it up. Figure out how stuff's going to move around, where it's going to get stored. Figure it out. And, you know, having projects in the works, like kind of before I was moving and then being like, uh, oh no, I'm moving and I have, I have to manage these projects and make sure that they still get done. Being invited back to Philly with a scholarship has been really kind of grounding in a sense because it's given me this very specific goal and thing to look forward to. And I'm making a bike that I'm excited about and that I'm just kind of letting creatively happen in my own way, which is something that I've been out of for a little bit. So it's been nice to, you know, you have that specific point in time that uh, is driving you to get back into that kind of swing of things, um, which has been super helpful. And I'm really excited to bring something to a show and kind of be back in it all. I've seen kind of one picture of your bike so far. It looks like a mountain bike. Correct. Mountain bike. Yes. So is this a British Columbia specific mountain bike? It is. So um, yeah, um, I have. What does that mean? (laughs) So oh boy, I'm gonna, this is a can of worms. There's a whole like specific North Shore. So I live in Squamish now, British Columbia, which is about uh, an hour-ish north of Vancouver. And there's this whole different vibe of what mountain biking is and like what you ride and how you ride it, which is all very new to me. And my mountain biking experience to to date is fairly minimal. Um, I mean, I've done a couple of races and fared very poorly. Um, and, and done, you know, just kind of riding with people, ridden whatever was available in vaguely my size. And that's fine. Because I would say I'm not like, I, I have a decent cross background, but I'm not in tune so much with, uh, you know, all of the specifics of mountain biking that you could probably just throw me on almost anything. And I'd be like, eh, yeah, it's fine, you know. In Squamish, there's a lot of kind of like trail and enduro vibes. Um, You know, it has to be good at climbing because unless you're getting a shuttle to the top, which is really big here, you know, like the $10 uh, shred shuttle, you know, you're climbing for 45 minutes to an hour and a half on access road to get up to the top of the trailhead. And then you're descending the steepest stuff that I've ever descended. Uh, the blue trails here are what I would consider to be black trails in Ontario, which is has been it's very humbling. Let me tell you, um, I took my bike on a very nice walk through the forest the other day. But it's it's good though. Like you I'm, do, you should do like bad bike stand up. Yeah, honestly. Um, so what I'm building for Philly is this kind of dynamic, aggressive trail bike where I want it to be. The trails here are super rocky, lots of roots because you're in you're in deep forest. Like you're legitimately you're in Garibaldi Park. You're on the side of a mountain face. Um, you are in old growth forest. So it's like unforgiving rocks, 
root stairs, huge drops. It's right between trail and enduro. I'm kind of calling it an aggressive trail bike that is set up to handle some aggressive descending. So that's kind of the vibe I'm going for. There's going to be like a little bit of lug flare, not too much because I'm like dialing it back a little bit. I was just but... about to ask about the flare. Yeah. I'm like, you've been doing a lot of really clean stuff lately because I'm, I'm stalking. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this like, like as it is, it looks pretty clean. There's going to be a, a carved seat tube lug, which I'm working on right now. And again, it's like me and a Sharpie and a jeweler saw just kind of this, I'm going to call it whimsical idea that I had. It's I don't know. Some people are going to love it or hate it. People are going to think it's funny or people are going to think it's stupid. And I'm okay with that because I think it's funny. So that's going on the seat tube. Just working with some nice like tube bending, making all the lines flow together, super swoopy and kind of that like really like flowy West Coast vibe. And then I'm going to cut out like a super big shiny name badge to put uh, across the front end. And I'm de- I designed it so it's going to be a bit of a gusset between the top tube and the down tube. I'm taking my my name badge and making it into a functional gusset, which is either going to be great or fail, become a disaster. So uh, I'm excited. I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna turn out cool. It's gonna be like the last thing you do on the bike. So you know, if you fail from yeah. there, like you super fail. I mean, I'm sure if it sucks, fine. I'll cut it off and I'll put a sticker on it. So I'll be disappointed, <laughs> but I mean, it's fine. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited. Really I'm excited for for the show and getting everyone together and what SRAM and Philly are making the effort to do. I think is really important. Do you want to talk about? Why that's important? Sure. Because for perspective, since 2015, there have only been four women frame builders at NABS mm-hmm. altogether mm-hmm. out of shows of hundreds and hundreds of builders. Mm-hmm. That's four total booths occupied by mm-hmm. women. The year that you debuted, you were the only woman builder showing. Correct. Yes. This is not uncommon. No. <laughs> it's a strange feeling to walk into a room at an entire trade show hall and look around and see almost nobody like yourself. And in some capacity, it can be almost reaffirming that you don't belong there. You know what I mean? And this is coming from now being in the trades and working in a bunch of shops and for for several years, it is getting better in, in the trades generally. However, the notion that it is not a thing for women is still very ingrained. You need role models and you need role models that you can identify with and that you can feel comfortable going to with questions and concerns or even just to you know to commiserate and banter with and that's been very I I feel very grateful that I've had a few very strong female role models specifically in kind of trades and entrepreneurship that I've been able to talk to but it's few and far between and to roll up to what is this acclaimed national show have no one there like you is just it's a weird feeling and that can be very off-putting for a lot of people you're kind of the only one there that is not let's say the status quo and that can put you into a very weird headspace that is like is this somewhere that is for me should I be here and I think this goes beyond kind of the standard like imposter syndrome vibe the way that I like read it is like is there a reason why people like me can't be successful here yeah and it's like who is this for and why am I here am I allowed to be here 
And if you don't have that kind of response of there are other people like you doing the same thing, it's very easy for people to just kind of shrug it and say, well, I guess this isn't a space for me. I won't come back here. And that is a vibe that I've gotten more at some shows than at others. And I think it's really important for people who are in these positions of having these massive audiences to really showcase a breadth of work beyond what is just the standard do the work of making sure that everybody feels that it is a space for them. Because I know so many talented fabricators that are not kind of just the generic white dude that is so common at this show. And it's like, you know, it's not saying that white dudes are awful and terrible and, you know, shouldn't be a show. Like, that's not the conversation. And when people kind of fall back immediately into that argument, it's like, relax, dude. Like, come on. It's just kind of opening up the doors and saying, yes, this is a space where you can come and hang and we're happy to have you. And, you know, your work is also celebrated. You can exist here as an equal. That's something that you can expect. You don't have to be cautious, which is a big thing that a lot of people don't realize. You can just roll up and hang. I think a lot of people don't realize how, like, how much in your life as a woman and how much in my time as a, a fabricator and someone working in the trades that messaging is kind of like beaten into you. The examples I could give you of the shit that has been said to me in professional environments that I can only imagine my male counterparts would never ever in their lives dream of interacting with is is astounding. So I think it's really important. And I'm really grateful and happy that Bina and Philly and Stram have taken this initiative to stand up and say, we want to welcome everybody. And we want to make sure that there's space for people who are, are different from the status quo. And that's fine. And everybody is here for the love of cycling and bikes and creating and this community. And we want to make sure that there's something here for everybody, that everyone is represented and everybody feels comfortable. And there are role models for everybody, which I think is super important as well. One of the really wonderful things about getting four builders like yourselves together uh, in one place is that it will compel people, you know, don't represent the status quo frame builder. You know, it will compel them to come to the show and, you know, talk to you. I hope so. Yes. I know folks who have been interested in getting into frame building, but just like haven't made the moves. I know that they're coming to Philly to come to talk to you, which is awesome. really exciting to me. And I that know it's really exciting. exciting to you. Yeah. So um, what's the advice that you give to the person who like wants to be the next Danielle Schoen when oh they boy. grow up? <laughs> um, <laughs> to some extent, you just have to go for it. You know, you need to make your own decision without all of these kind of external forces. What's important to you and what you want to accomplish and what you want to try and do and, and really let that kind of guide you and drive you. Because if you sit there and worry about, you know, what everyone else is going to think and say and all that kind of stuff is you can get yourself into this. And like easier said than done, you know, this is something I struggle with as well. But you get yourself into this kind of frozen place where you just never try. And it's like, that sucks because you're worried that someone's going to make a shitty comment on the internet or like be mean to you. And that's, it is, it's, it's difficult to deal with that kind of stuff. But I think one of the best things that someone ever said to me is like, you could be the most beautiful, ripe, delicious apple in the entire world. 
And there's always going to be someone who comes along and say, I fucking hate apples. So you just kind of, you have to take it with a grain of salt. I will absolutely, even if I don't know you, I will always talk to someone about getting into it and technical questions and whatever. Like I am more than happy to try and be that kind of point of reference for someone who is um, trying to do something new that they're unsure of. So I'm more than happy to like field any questions. I might not have all the answers, but (laughs) I actually, when I was at the Toronto bike show, I think maybe the second, I think I did it three years. So I think the second year I went, a woman came up to me and she was like, you know, I've seen your, I, I saw you last year and I saw your work online and I really like what you're doing. And I saw that you went to welding school and I want to go, but I'm not sure. And I don't know, like, I don't think it's a thing I can do. And I was like, no, fuck it. I'm like, you can do it. You should go. Like, these are the programs I went to. It's super accessible to just kind of like try it. The worst thing is you go, you do one class, you hate it. You never have to do it again. But like, absolutely. Like, you know, it's a safe environment for you to be like, that is a big thing is for someone else to say that, you know, you can go there and people will respect you. I had a great experience at George Brown for that. You know, my instructors spoke to me equally and I wasn't there as kind of a joker, an outsider. Like I was treated very um, with respect and equally, which is unfortunately not always what happens. No. And (laughs) (laughs) I, I chatted with her for a little bit and then, you know, she went on her way. And then the next year she came back to my booth because I went to the show again And she was like, I did it. I went to school. I'm in school for welding. I'm doing the thing. And I was like, this is like, I almost started to cry. Like, I'm, I'm like, I'm not even kidding. I was so happy that I could give someone that confidence to go and do the thing that they were like, maybe um, unsure about or just kind of reaffirm that like, yes, this is a place that you are welcome this is a thing that you can do. This is well within your skills. You can do it. Yes, let's go. And I think that if anything of all of this, that I can be that beacon for someone else, it's worth its weight in gold a thousand times over. So if we've never talked, if you want to send me a message on Instagram, please shoot me a message. Like I'm happy to chat and just find those people. Like, you know, it's scary and hard to go into a new thing, but you eventually find your little nook and you find all these incredible people that like and do the same things as you. When I first rolled up to a trade show, I I didn't see anyone like me or know anyone who did kind of the same things. And then when I got more into it, it's like I met all these incredible people and I learned about Julie and all like the incredible stuff that she's doing. And I met Megan um, and, you know, and Jackie's coming to the show and see like the, the new and fresh, amazing stuff that she's doing is you, you find these people and it can be so exhilarating and, and encouraging and affirming to find those people that are doing the same things as you and have the same desires and want to accomplish the same things. So, um, and I, that this all kind of rounds back into the, the representation standpoint where the more people who are getting out there um, and coming to shows, you you kind of spread that further and further as people will see you and then they'll come and then we'll try and then it'll just get better for everybody. And like, why wouldn't you want that? You know, bikes are this incredible uh, tool in our lives for adventures and fun and beauty and relationships and like all this cool shit that you can accomplish is like, why wouldn't you want that for everybody? So I don't know that was a bit of a rant, but that's how I feel about that. I'm like, I've got my little notes on the side and I'm like, 
I'm like describing nabs, gets back to summary. Ooh, this is gooey here. I have little timestamps. Yeah. Draw little hearts around um, it. Little hearts, yes. It gets a little gooey. That's how I feel. Well, I, I like think that actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is a really good place to end because okay. <laughs> we've been talking for a really yes. long time. <laughs> um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I'm super excited to see what you bring to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to go to the show. I'm excited to see everyone at the show. Let's do it. Stay tuned for our next episode where we speak to Megan Dean of Moth Attack. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you want more interviews like this, hit the podcast link on Bike Rumor and let us know who you want to hear from. And if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's like the air in our tires. It's what keeps us rolling. Thanks for listening, friends. You are all diamonds. Stay dry.